You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. You guys are in for a treat today because our guest is Dr. Rita Jablonski. Rita is a nurse practitioner and researcher who began her career as a nursing assistant. Her passion is improving the care for people with dementia and supporting their family caregivers. In addition to her research and teaching activities, she practices one day a week at the Memory Disorders Clinic right here at UAB Hospital. Rita, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you. I could talk to you all day about this and we have talked quite a bit. Let's just start with a general question about how many people in the U.S. are affected by dementia. Almost six million people have a diagnosis of dementia And again, those are the people with a diagnosis. There are many more who are starting to exhibit some of the problems and have not yet been diagnosed. There are almost 18 million family caregivers, people who provide care to individuals with dementia without pay. Wow. It's essentially, if you took all the people with breast cancer and all the people with an opiate addiction and put them in one spot, the people with dementia would exceed that number. Of those combined? Of those combined. And what does that mean for costs to the healthcare system? Well, again, using opiate addiction as a frame of reference, there, the healthcare costs, the hospital and doctor costs for caring for people with dementia is a little under $300 billion. It is maybe 25 billion for people with opiate addiction. And you're saying billion with billion, a B. Billion yeah. annually, every yeah. year. Wow. Now, if you look at total costs, which for the opiate crisis would be incarceration. Incarceration, lost time, medical costs, under 100 billion. For people with dementia, the total economic cost to this country every year and that includes lost wages from caregivers opting to reduce hours or leave the workforce to care for their loved one, and medical costs is $600 billion annually. So this is beyond crisis. That's a a staggering number to me, and I feel like we don't hear as much about it. Why is that? Part of the reason is many people erroneously think that dementia is just a normal part of aging, not to be excited about. It's not. Another reason has to do with stigma. There's too many people who think of Alzheimer's and the other dementias as a mental health disease, not as a neurological disease. I hope maybe if we can talk about it a little more and get some information out there, we can hopefully decrease that stigma a little bit. Um, so we, you mentioned just now some maybe normal forgetfulness Mm -hmm. versus early signs of a true dementia that we need to be concerned about. What are the differences there? I like to use the the terms distraction versus dementia. Most of us go about our lives highly distracted. This morning, I'm on my way, I'm driving to work, and my mind is on this, it's on a meeting I have later on this afternoon, what's going on this weekend, did I pay that bill, yada, yada, yada. I'm distracted. Because of my distraction, I may do something. For example, I was pulling out chicken for dinner. I open up the freezer. I had a coffee cup in my hand, or the ubiquitous cup of coffee, (laughs) four to five glasses or cups before I get up out the door. And I open the freezer. I pull out the chicken. I need both hands. So I take my coffee cup, and I stick it on the shelf. Pull out the chicken. Freezer door shuts. My mind is already on, I need to get out the door, I'm late. So I lay the chicken in the fridge, wash my hands. 
I go out the door. What will happen tonight is my son will be helping me prepare dinner, and he will open up the freezer to pull out the frozen vegetables, and there will be a coffee cup. And he will say, hey, Mom, and because I was distracted, I'll look at that coffee cup, and the memory of this morning will flood. I will know exactly what I did and why I did it. If I had dementia, I would have opened up the freezer forgot what I was doing, and then put the coffee cup there, thinking I was putting it in an appropriate place, I would shut the freezer door. When it was brought to my attention later on today, I would have no recall of it. And I would say, I didn't do that. Somebody else must have. So that's where also where you get some of the paranoia and irritability early on in the disease, because if I forgot that I forgot, and people keep telling me of all these things I've done, they're all crazy. I'm fine. Right. You mentioned to me earlier it's a problem with thinking and doing. Yes. More so than a distraction. Is what yes. Saying. I think you had asked me what are some of the early signs mm-hmm. to look for. And with thinking and doing, problems with thinking will show up early with repeating myself. If I'm having a conversation with someone who's just starting to have some problems, I may hear the same question or the same sentence multiple times in a brief conversation, maybe a five, ten minute conversation. I will hear, my daughter's coming tomorrow. That's great. Da 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 da. My daughter's coming tomorrow. And each time it's stated as if it has not been stated before. And if I were to say to my companion, you just told me that, I may get one of two reactions. One denial, no, I didn't because I forgot that I forgot. Or I may have a cover. Oh yeah, that's right, I did. And a lot of times in the early stages, people have a lot of social cues that remain intact. So people may cover with, oh, I just had a little brain frazzle. But when the brain frazzles start accumulating and you see it more and more, there's a problem. The other issue is with doing. I go into certain classrooms once a week and I operate the computer. I put my hard drive in or I go to Google Docs, I download. I don't have any problem. If I start to come into my classroom and I can no longer manipulate or perform an activity I've had no problems with before, that can be a red flag. That is not to say they just upgraded the system and my password doesn't work anymore. It's difficulty with handling items and devices that have recently become part of my repertoire, and I can no longer do them. Got it. So what causes it? Is there a cause and certain types of, there are different types of dementia. We hear a lot about Alzheimer's, but is that a type of dementia? It is. I like to use the analogy of car. You have the generic word car, but then you have different types like Ford, Honda, Toyota, Nissan, you know, whatever. With dementia is the umbrella term that talks, that signifies progressive and chronic problems with thinking and doing. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia, and it's one we hear the most because it was the first one identified. And for the longest time, anybody who walked into a clinician's office with some problems with memory or with doing received that diagnosis. Whether or not it was accurate was another thing. Now, people who have had 
high blood pressure or struggled with cardiovascular disease their whole lives, they are at risk for a type of dementia known as vascular dementia. And if I were to look at an MRI of a person's brain who's had long-standing high blood pressure, I should say uncontrolled high blood pressure, and maybe even diabetes, I would see evidence of small, tiny little strokes that in certain MRI images show up as little bright poofs, little, little like stars mm-hmm. on the MRI. So just like I can get a piece of paper and I can poke discrete holes in it, and I hold that piece of paper up to the light, you may see light shining through the holes, but overall, it's a piece of paper and you could probably still use it. As the strokes occur and and the damage accumulates over time, you start to get these discrete pieces of damage coalescing into big tracks of damage. Much like if I had multiple puncture marks on a piece of paper and they all clump, clump together, I now have a huge hole or tear, the paper is unusable. And that causes problems a lot of times with retrieval because when I want to retrieve a a memory, my white matter serves as highways in the brain. So my memories travel up and down my highways. So picture 65 at rush hour with two lanes shut. It's not going to be pretty. Everything's going to stop. If I have enough damage because of asymptomatic strokes, I, I didn't feel them, I didn't know I had them, then I'm going to have problems with retrieval. I'm going to lose pathways lose highways and I'm not going to be able to get to that memory or it may take longer for me to get to it or if my brain tries to detour I may be able to get to it through another way. What kind of behaviors would we start to see in a person that's developing either early or later stage dementia? Okay I'm going to talk about generally okay. because people who present with, say, frontotemporal dementia or Lewy body will have some of their own discrete problems. But regardless of the type of dementia, even though you might have a bunch of behaviors, as people progress from moderate to severe, the behaviors do this. You'll start to see more similarities. Okay. So some of the similarities I may see are, again, the rep. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, I, okay, this isn't dementia. This is distraction. So could you tell me, you, you asked me about behaviors I would yes. see with moderate mm-hmm. to severe. If we were, well, even mild, what kinds of things would we see our, our loved ones or our patients in the hospital? What uh, do they look like? We know what's well, going inside their head now. Sure. What are they well, exhibiting? Well, in, in the hospital or even at home, you may see more irritability. And people will say, oh, they're just so stubborn and mean. My colleague, Dr. Powers, calls that the S&M diagnosis. But what you're seeing is, again, to use another metaphor, we have all these nerves in our brain that have jobs. And if I were to show up at my nursing job, for you nurses out there, if you show up on your unit and you have half the staff today, for whatever reason, it's Friday the 13th, I decided not to show up. If you have half your staff and you're trying to get everything done, you're going to be tired, you're going to be overwhelmed, you may start snapping at each other, you may start to have mistakes, and you may become very tired and irritable because you are doing two or three times the work. And that is what happening happens with dementia. As you lose neurons, the neurons that are there are trying to do 
the same amount of work. So you will see some irritability and, and new changes. You may also see some refusal or care-resistant behavior. And we have something in our brain called the amygdala, and that is our fire alarm. That tells us, oh no, this is scary, you know, all hands on deck, run away or freeze or fight. And I'll use the analogy of a bear. If I'm out at Oak Mountain State Park and I'm riding my bike and there is a bear standing in the middle of the bike path, I'm going to do one of three things. I may freeze. Oh my gosh, there's a bear. I may decide to turn and pedal as if my life depended upon it, or I may decide to fight the bear. Not a good option. That's because my amygdala and other parts of the brain are saying, you got a black bear standing here, you are in trouble. Now let's say I go to the Birmingham Zoo. I see a black bear in an exhibit. I'm not going to respond the same way. My amygdala is going to say, uh-oh, there's a bear. My frontal cortex, my hippocampus, other parts of the brain are going to say, shh, it's okay. It's a bear. It's in an exhibit. It's probably tame because it's in the zoo, not saying it is. And you are 40 feet away from it with a moat. You're fine. Take that analogy to regular care. If I'm the patient in a hospital and someone comes in and helps me bathe or helps me go to the toilet, I'm going to be grateful for the help. But if I have a loss of neurons, if I have dementia, my amygdala is going to see that person getting close to me or touching other parts of my body as an assault. And I don't have the pathways or the other parts of the brain to say, it's okay, the nurse is helping you. So when the nurse approaches me, I may push the nurse's hand away, or I may play possum and put the covers under over my head and pretend they're not there because I'm trying to protect myself. And this happens with family caregivers as well, especially around bathing and dressing. I think that is so important to understand because it's, it's just their natural reaction because they might be scared, mm-hmm. not because they're trying to fight the, the care. Right. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, a lot of caregivers, both formal and informal, will say, she's just playing, or he's doing that on purpose, or he's just being difficult. Not really. The person, is, the body, the brain, is trying to preserve itself and protect itself with deficits. Because if, you, if I were to have a picture of a brain in moderate to severe dementia, you will see shrinkage. There, there's pieces of the brain that's missing. So the body, it makes sense that the body goes on super high alert to preserve someone who's already vulnerable. So interesting. So how do we care for those people? We are obviously there to do good for them and to make sure that they're safe and and sound at home and when they come to the hospital to take care of them perhaps for other reasons. But what kinds of things can we do to to get through that? Well, the first thing is one's approach. People with dementia, as it goes from moderate to severe, start to lose the ability to understand and use language. From a physiologic perspective, I have something called the temporal lobe that lives underneath my ears. And with dementia, as it progresses, the temporal lobe, among other parts of the brain, will start to shrink. The temporal lobe assigns sound to word. So if you say cat, my temporal lobe goes, it it takes takes the cat sound and assigns it to a picture of of a cat. So the language makes sense. I lose that temporal lobe, 
and you come in and start speaking to me, and I, I turn into the adult from Charlie Brown. All I hear is wah, 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 wah. It doesn't make any sense, and I may react. The other thing is, as the brain is shrinking, it can only hold on to so many words at a time. So I want to, if I'm working with someone with dementia, I want to watch my nonverbals. I want to smile and look pleasant. I don't want to look stressed because the vibes can be felt immediately. I want to be short, sweet, and concrete. It's time for me to help you. Let's go to the bathroom. Not go in and say, oh, today's Thursday or today's Friday, July 13th, and blah, 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 and you're going to go to the bathroom. The person can't hold on to all that. And that brings me to something really important that I don't want to forget to say. Most times in long-term care, in hospitals, it's faster for me as a nurse just to walk into a room and wash the person with dementia and do all the care, brush the teeth for them, and then I help them get up and I sit them in a jerry chair. Job's done. I may cause a problem. People with dementia, if they don't do the activity every day, may lose the memory of how to do that activity. Once that memory is lost, there's no raw material to recreate it, or there's very little raw material, depending on where you're at. So we see all the time, and my family caregivers can back me up on this. My loved one is home, is walking, is able to dress him or herself and do a lot. Something happens. They go to the hospital. They're there for seven to 10 days. They come home, cannot walk, cannot use the toilet, forgot how to dress him or herself. They've regressed. It's because as a nurse, I did for them, I wiped out their memory. So if I can leave anything to my colleagues out in long-term or acute care, allow the person with dementia to do as much of their own activities as safely possible. Get them out of bed and walk them two or three times a day. Get PT involved, OT. It's man- it, it is so important because our best intentions may have unintended consequences and now the family caregiver is left with a brand new set of problems. That was a real aha moment for me when we were talking and planning for this because I didn't realize that they wouldn't get that those skills back. So you mentioned earlier um, pantomiming yes. and how other strategies that the nurses can use in the hospital. Yes, uh, the approach, supplementing my verbal Actually, when I care for people with dementia, I tend to become very quiet, which will shock my colleagues, that I tend to stop talking and I do more gestures like brush your teeth. I may also, if I want to lead someone and I'm going to lean over and get into your frame, I may, as nurses, a lot of times we pull on people. No, you put the person's hand over your wrist and you guide them where you want to go. I mean... Tell me, how, how does this feel versus how does this feel? Well, it's, it's a big difference. I feel like I'm not being forced. Exactly. But guided. You said it. Yeah. Right. Um, also. Um, oh, you mentioned oh. keeping a schedule. Oh. Yeah. You want to stay on a schedule because a lot of times, especially at home, it becomes very tempting to just let the person sit and watch TV or I go do things and just have the person stay in one place. That causes boredom. I get phone calls all the time. 
so-and-so won't sleep at night. What have they done all day? Oh, they sat in their recliner. This is also a big issue with long-term care because people with dementia, we all want, we all have a purpose. We all need to have a job. And so if I have dementia and my outlets become decreased, I may start to find outlets that other people don't like. So I hear all the time, your, your patient who is in this long-term care facility, they're into everything. They're going into other residents' room. They're fighting with other residents. Well, yeah, they're bored. So we need to have activities that are gender-specific. We have a lot of men going into long-term care and younger men. So bingo and arts and crafts are not going to work with this demographic. So finding out what the person's previous occupation was and maybe having activities that are aligned with their occupation. For example, if uh, I had someone who was an attorney and we found out by accident, if you gave this person our scrap paper with printing on one side and there was no HIPAA stuff, it was just, I think it was one of my students was working with me and she had her outline from 313 where they had all these questions they had to ask people to do their case history or whatever assignment they had. And she had brought it into the room after I said, don't. And that's another thing. And she had left it on the table, and we started working with this person. He picked up her paperwork and took her pen and started to almost highlight and underline her care plan information. That kept him occupied for 20 minutes. So that became something we did with him. We would walk him up and down the hallway and give him work. We would give him depositions to read. In his reality, that's mm -hmm. what we were doing. So that's some of the creative ways you can in involve families and find out what the person's previous history was and enter their reality, figure out what makes sense for them and find activities to keep them busy. In the hospital setting, how do you plan for things like taking to x-ray and, and letting communicating with the patient that there are things that you have to do that day. That they is might ask you a million questions about they a do. million times. And, and Tracy, I'm so glad you brought that up because early in my career when I was a nursing assistant, I was told no matter how many times they ask the question, you answer it as if you heard it for the first time. Why well, did that for the first like day or two I was working? And then by day three, I was a little cranky and I respond, the person would follow me around and say, what time is it, what time is it? And I got a little cranky and I said, two minutes since the last time you asked. Well, of course, that was the one time I said something with my boss standing behind, well, first, and there were many times after that. So I, I answered that inappropriately. My boss was standing right behind me and I still have her teeth marks on my backside appropriately so for how she responded. And that was my lesson to no matter how many times the question is asked. So if I'm in a hospital and I say to my patient, You're, we're taking you to x-ray. Okay, where am I going? We're taking you to x-ray. I need to be prepared to repeat myself as many times as I have to with a smile as if I'm hearing it for the first time. Because the person with dementia has forgotten that he or she has forgotten. And for me to be irritable or to snap is going to offend this individual who doesn't remember they've just asked. And the anxiety will increase and I may see agitation in behaviors. 
That's where the wandering comes from. I'm scared. I don't know why I'm here. I'm going to leave and go out the door. So we also have to be aware of elopement and keep an eye on individuals. We have a question from our audience, Oh, um, and this this is a great one. Should a caregiver pursue a gerontolo- gerontologist or a neurologist for a dementia diagnosis? And we, one of my questions for you later would be, what, where's the first step? So where does it come in that you go to a specialist? Well, the first step is pre-specialist, and that is if I think my mom is starting to have some memory problems, I want to make sure there's not a medical reason and a reversible reason for this behavior. So I want my mom to get a really good checkup. I want her I want her to be checked for diabetes. If she does have diabetes, I want to make sure her blood sugars are tightly controlled. I want to get her uh, blood count checked. Is she anemic? I want to have her liver functions tested because if there's a liver problem going on, she may become confused. I want her thyroid levels checked because people with a high or low thyroid will have behaviors corresponding to that. I also want her checked for depression because when people are really, really depressed, they may show cognitive slowing that can be misdiagnosed. I also want some vitamins and minerals to be checked because if some of my electrolytes or vitamins are off, I may have memory problems. So once I've had a really good, comprehensive physical examination, and if nothing shows up and the behaviors are still there, the next step is to go to a good geriatrician and or a good neurologist. And at UAB, we have an amazing geriatrics practice and also a plug for memory disorders because your first appointment will probably be a good 90 minutes where you will receive a comprehensive examination and we would also suggest imaging to see is it a vascular situation or an Alzheimer's situation or something totally different. Okay, great. Those are some great resources. Um, we've got about just a few minutes left. Um, just if you can, quickly, we talked earlier about when I think my mom can't remember me okay. and it hurts my feelings. How do you, what are some strategies for caregivers when that happens? Because I know that that feelings can get hurt. I do get that a lot. And the thing that happens is people move backwards in time. And if I were to have dementia, and according to my kids, I might, but I haven't been diagnosed. But if I were to have a memory disorder and I move backwards in time, I would forget, we all have pictures in our mind of our children and our loved ones at different stages. I call it the deck of cards. Mm -hmm. So right now, I have a deck of cards of my daughter, Sarah, and it starts from infancy to when I saw her this morning wearing her favorite skull shirt on her way to go out to the door to her real job. And if I were to have dementia, I may not be able to retrieve the most recent deck of card pictures. I may be able to see Sarah at age 12 with her braids. So if she were to walk into my room, I'm looking for Sarah at age 12. This lovely young woman in front of me, well, that's not Sarah. The memories are there. They just need to be retrieved. So one strategy I've suggested is for family members to have a frame where they have a picture of themselves maybe five or six years old, 
a picture of themselves maybe around 10 or 12, and then a picture of themselves today. And to walk into the room and, hi, I'm, I'm your daughter, Sarah. No, you're not. Don't get upset. Go, oh, okay. Show the picture. Look at this. This is Sarah when she was five. Oh, yes, I remember that. And then you have some lovely reminiscence. And then bring the person, and this is Sarah today. This is me, Mom. And you've allowed the person to follow the detour to that picture. It does work. So I don't want people to lose hope. I want to provide people with strategies to get to some of these places. And to put in a plug, I do blog, and I do blog for the Alzheimer's Reading Room. And a lot of what I'm talking about today has been addressed by Bob DeMarco or has been written by me. So that is a resource for our listeners. Great. So we probably have to wrap it up. Unfortunately, Aww. that 30 minutes went by really fast. It did. Um, just what? tell us, what, what, what do you want us to take from this discussion? What's a great strategy or that you want to communicate? I want people to realize that a diagnosis of dementia does not mean let's take out the bucket list and go. That there are ways to be on this journey and to make this journey a joyful and optimistic one. That I I don't want to say, I don't want to minimize the amount of effort it takes to be a formal or informal caregiver but there are ways to handle the behaviors. And every day when I interact with patients or their families, I find ways to new strategies all the time. And I found my caregivers who are highly creative and they do find strategies. So we're in this together. Oh, that's great. So we've got time, I think, for one more. Should you put a question up, or a, I'm sorry, a sign up behind a patient in the hospital saying they have dementia. You know, I've never had anybody ask me that. And I think it may not be a bad idea as long as it's done in a dignified way. And if that sign is part of an overall hospital or long-term care approach of how to treat people with dementia with dignity and respect. I don't want this to be, oh, the person has dementia, I can just write them off. I think the spirit of the question is, I want to make sure that people repeat themselves appropriately and follow all these strategies. One thing that goes along with that, I think, is not using the elder speak, which just Ah, quickly, because I really feel strongly about that. Me too. For those of you who've never heard of it, elder speak is a way, is baby talk for older adults and people with dementia. And I didn't coin coin it, another researcher did. But that's, okay, I have a cat. So when I see my cat in the morning, hi, Pippin, good morning, who's a good little boy? I talk in a high-pitched tone of voice. I call him sweetie and whatever else. And I use uh, uh, pronouns like we and us, even though we are not eating the cat food and we are not using the litter box. (laughs) Sometimes clinicians do that with older adults and with people with dementia. And here it is. I may forget my name, I may forget I was married a couple of times, I may forget my kids, I will never forget that I'm a grown woman. And if you as a clinician talk to me in baby talk, I will slap you because you are assaulting my dignity. And if you want to get hit by a person with dementia in the hospital, do elder speak. I love that. (laughs) And I love just, 
you know, keeping the dignity, I think, is a great way to wrap it up. We need to, to respect that in those people. Thank you so much. What a wonderful discussion. Thank you. We need to have a part two because we could talk all day. So thank you all for watching. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.